pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the words of Holy Scripture. Enable us now by the power of your Holy Spirit to receive the preaching of your word. Open our minds and hearts to understand your word, to believe and to trust in your word. And help us to put your word into practice in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You'll open your Bibles again to the book of Daniel. Uh, now, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, page 737 in the Pew Bibles. Daniel 1, 1 through 7. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. As I mentioned earlier this evening, we're beginning a new series tonight. I'll be preaching through the book of the prophet Daniel. This evening, we'll be looking not only at these first seven verses, but also considering the many introductory questions that help us to be oriented to a new book of the Bible. Those are the questions of the who, what, where, when, and why behind this book. The chief among these questions tonight is why? Why study the book of Daniel? First and foremost is because this is the inspired, infallible word of God. God has revealed it to us. He has given it to us. And therefore, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. And although... The historical reliability of Daniel is perhaps the most debated, the most denied of all the Old Testament books, not only by critical and unbelieving scholars, but sadly even by some evangelical scholars. For us, there's a very simple proof that it is the Word of God. It is quoted as the Word of God by Jesus himself in Matthew 24, 15. And so our Lord Jesus Christ gives this book his divine stamp of approval. But why this particular book at this particular time? 
as is my habit when I have the time. I like to listen to sermons by other OPC pastors on the text I'm preaching. And one pastor preaching in 2016 mentioned that he had recently heard a sermon by another uh, pastor, guest pastor preaching in his church, which was titled, The Honeymoon is Over. And the pastor was saying that while the U.S. has been unique in the great liberty it has given for the preaching of the gospel and the practice of biblical Christianity, we can now see that this liberty is slowly but surely being ratcheted down. Perhaps the turning point in this preacher's mind was the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision in 2015. Perhaps for others, the turning point was the Roe versus Wade decision back in 1973. Or perhaps it could be placed in any number of other points. Whatever the turning point, whenever the honeymoon ended, it has become increasingly clear that we are living in a more and more secular culture, growing more and more hostile to true biblical Christianity. And so in light of this, we need to learn to be faithful as pilgrims and exiles in the midst of an increasingly hostile culture. We learn, need to learn how to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's exactly what Daniel is all about. We also need to remember that when powerful nations rise and fall, God is sovereign over all these things and his kingdom will never end. It's another major theme of Daniel. That's why we need to study the book of Daniel. Now let's consider the story and the setting of Daniel, which we see here already laid out for us in these first seven verses. And here we need to recall, let me just give a brief summary of where we are in the history of Israel and Judah, which became a divided nation after the death of King Solomon about 931 BC. After that, there were two centuries of constant unfaithfulness and rebellion against the Lord in the northern kingdom. And so the Lord gave that northern kingdom of Israel into the hands of the Assyrian Empire, and they were taken into exile. And from that point, they are lost to history. They are now known as the Lost Ten Tribes. But then another hundred years passed, and Assyria itself has fallen to the new superpower to its east, to Babylon. And this is a short, short aside, but I believe it's of biblical and theological importance. There's only one Hebrew name in the Bible to describe both the city and the empire based out of the city in the land of Shinar. In Genesis 11, the city name, it's straight, transcribed straight from the Hebrew, the name of the city is Babel. Here in Daniel 1.1, the name is the same. It is Babel. Now, I don't know the reason, but it's a tradition. All the English translations have followed this tradition of translating that same name everywhere except in Genesis 11, following the Greek form of the name, Babylon. But all throughout the Hebrew Bible, there is one name for this city and this empire, and that name is Babel. And I think we do well to remember that this is the same place that originally rebelled against God, attempting to build a tower to heaven in Genesis 11. And yet, as we also see here, God can use even a godless nation for accomplishing his purposes 
for his people. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah, which was not taken into exile 100 years earlier, is now about to suffer the same fate as the northern tribes. God will discipline them by sending them into exile. And King Josiah had died in battle against Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. Necho had placed Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, on the throne and had made Judah a vassal of the Egyptian empire to the south. But now Egypt has been defeated in battle by Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar now comes to besiege Jerusalem as described in Daniel 1.1. And after a short siege, Judah is now made a vassal of Babylon. And they take their tribute, not only in gold, but also temple vessels and also in people. Young men of the royal family, young men of noble birth, young men of wisdom to be trained in the Babylonian court. We see here also that Judah is being squeezed between two great empires who are fighting to rule over this small, powerless nation that lies between them. Who will control Judah? If it's appropriate to draw an illustration from current events, from breaking news, this is really not all that different from what's playing out right now in Ukraine. The U.S. and the EU would like Ukraine to become a member of NATO, the NATO alliance, while Putin and Russia are saying absolutely not. They want Ukraine to be absorbed into Russia. And who knows if the relatively small and less powerful Ukraine will itself have any say in the matter. Judah was in a similar position, being squeezed between Egypt and Babylon, and whichever empire's army had won the most recent battle near Jerusalem would set their chosen chosen ruler over Jerusalem to rule as a vassal king in the name of that empire. And so it says in Daniel 1-2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, and we date that to approximately 605 B.C. This time Daniel was a young man, perhaps about 15 years old, and he was taken into exile, and he lived a long life, living to be over 80 years old. This book then chronicles his life of faithfulness in exile and his visions all the way through the fall of Babylon itself to the Medo-Persian Empire at the hands of King Cyrus. Daniel would actually live just long enough to hear the decree of Cyrus 70 years later, allowing the Jews to return to the land, to rebuild the temple, even commissioning royal funds for its rebuilding as we read in the book of Ezra. With this understanding of the setting and the story of this book, let's now consider its major themes. I've already touched on a few of these briefly, but let me say a bit more. First of all, this book is telling history from God's perspective. This is told both through Nebuchadnezzar's prophetic dreams and through Daniel's apocalyptic visions. Although one man may live to see 70 or 80 years, God can see all of history laid out before him, for he has planned the end from the beginning, and he holds all of history in his hands. And he can reveal those plans for the future whenever and however he chooses to do so, as he does here in Daniel. As it says in Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the minds of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. 
A second theme, and we'll see this repeated all through the book. The kingdoms of man versus the kingdom of God. Kingdoms rise and fall, but God remains in control of all things, and he remains supreme. He reigns supreme over all things. You see this already in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. This was the Lord's doing. It was God's decision at this time to bring the covenant curses on his people Judah for their unfaithfulness to the Mosaic covenant. This was something that had itself been prophesied all the way back in Deuteronomy. This theme runs throughout the entire book, both through the narrative and the visionary sections. And those two sections parallel each other in many ways. And we also have this great prophecy of the coming of the Son of Man, which we read earlier, chapter 7. A prophecy which itself will be very important in Jesus' ministry as he takes this title, the Son of Man, to be his preferred title for himself during his ministry. It's ultimately for his quotation of Daniel 7, when he says to the council, that they will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It is for this that the high priest tears his robes and says, he speaks blasphemy. It is for this that the Sanhedrin immediately condemn him to his death. But of course, we know that Jesus speaks truly. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And every knee will bow, and every mouth will confess that he is Lord. Question is, will you confess that willingly and gladly? Or will you be forced to confess unwillingly? Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Psalm 2, one of the great messianic psalms describing our Lord Christ. He is the Lord of all. He has been entrusted with all authority in heaven and on earth. And all will see him when he comes again with the clouds, with great power and great glory to usher in the fullness of his kingdom. But that does not mean that he faces no opposition now. That does not mean that the fullness of his kingdom has come already. That still awaits his return And as we work our way through this book, we'll see that the prophecies contained here do not cover only the span of history leading up to the coming of Christ, but they also continue to speak to our time as well. I'll be arguing that the fourth kingdom, both in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the visions, the fourth beast, very much in parallel with the book of Revelation, describes what I will call Rome and beyond. In other words, it is the biblical Babylon, the ungodly empires and nations of this world that continue to oppose the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have much to learn from this theme of the kingdoms of man versus the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom of God. This then brings us to the third theme, our response. 
If God is sovereign, if Christ is ruling his kingdom, but there is still powerful opposition, how then shall we live? We are to be faithful, even in exile. We are to be pilgrims and strangers on the earth. Of course, we are also to be faithful to the Lord when we live in times of abundance and plenty and relative ease, but how much more so when there is greater opposition? And don't get me wrong, though our culture is growing more hostile to the gospel, true Bible-believing Christians are still far from being a persecuted minority in the United States as they are in many places in this world. Even as, we have, even as we have much to learn from the examples of Daniel and his friends in this book, we also have much to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering much deeper persecution in other places around the world, even now. We also see in this book God's protection in the midst of great persecution. Now, these three are just a few of the major themes that run throughout this book of the Bible. Now let's consider the genre and basic structure of the book. And we can simply divide the book into two halves. First half of the book is the narrative section. It describes the life and experiences of Daniel and his friends along with chapter 4, which is a personal testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now these give us examples to emulate. Daniel is not merely an example. You'll notice I didn't title my sermon tonight, Dare to be a Daniel, and I'm unlikely to title a sermon that. It's not that it's wrong to say dare to be a Daniel, but I hope you'll see that there is much more to this book than merely learning from the example of Daniel. Yes, he is an example, but Daniel as a prophet is also an Old Testament forerunner of Jesus Christ, our great prophet. Like all the Old Testament prophets, he points us forward to the greater prophet who is to come. And even the kings in this book, though highly flawed and most likely none of them were actually believers in Christ, they have lessons to teach us as well. In them we see the truth of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is the stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The Lord uses these mighty kings as instruments in his hand to accomplish his purposes. The first six chapters are narrative. The second half of the book, chapters 7 through 12, is drastically different in style and genre, but not in theme. In fact, common themes overlap both sections. This section contains Daniel's visions, visions revealed to Daniel by God. And they are described with this term, apocalyptic. This term simply means to reveal, to uncover. It is something revealed by God, but it's also a technical theological term. This is actually the same term used to describe the book of Revelation. And it actually comes from the title of Revelation because Revelation in Greek is simply the word apocalypsis. And you'll notice that the book Revelation contains the very same sort of symbolic visions as here in Daniel. And as we work through Daniel, we'll often be noting parallels with the book of Revelation. Let me note a few common, characteristic, common characteristics of apocalyptic visions. First, they tend to be highly symbolic. 
and this can pose some difficulty for interpretation, so we'll need to consider them carefully. Second, there's a strong emphasis put on divine intervention, not only by God himself, but also by God's servants, the angels. You'll notice the same is true in Revelation. And third, of course, the scope is broad. As we'll see, Daniel is not just prophesying about his own day, but centuries, even millennia to come, just as in Revelation. So that's the basic outline of the book, half narrative, half apocalyptic visions. Now let's consider the language of the book. I'm sure most of you know that the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. But here in Daniel, we have several chapters of the Bible written in a third language, Aramaic. The book begins and ends in Hebrew, with the first chapter in chapters 8 through 12, all in Hebrew, which was the native language of God's Old Testament people, Israel. But the central chapters of the book are written in Aramaic. You can actually see exactly where the transition is if you look closely at chapter 2, verse 4, in your English Bible. So Daniel 2, 4, Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, quote, dot, dot, dot. Following this, the Aramaic continues until the end of chapter 7. And you also see a footnote there in your ESV to mark the transition. It's also interesting to note that the Aramaic continues past the the genre division, which, you know, we divided the book in half after chapter 6. So chapter 7, the first of Daniel's visions... The most important of Daniel's visions is still written in Aramaic. But this causes us to ask the question, why would half of the book be written in Aramaic? Here it's helpful to know that Aramaic was the international lingua franca of Daniel's day. It was the language of trade, the language of the Babylonian Empire. It was also a Semitic language, closely related to Hebrew. In fact, the two languages used the same alphabet. And one of the first things Daniel would have learned in his training, if he had not already learned it in Jerusalem, would have been Aramaic. So in other words, this prophetic revelation given by God to Daniel was not just for the benefit of his people, Israel, but for all who could take up and read And this was a message concerning the nations, for the nations, for all who could and would read it. It was a message that the Son of Man was coming with an everlasting kingdom. And so just as the New Testament was written in Greek, the lingua franca of that day, so Daniel was written, at least in part, in Aramaic, so that the nations would hear The Son of Man is coming, the kingdom of God is coming, and he will reign with an everlasting kingdom. Let's consider the question of authorship. Who wrote this book? Some will say the book is called Daniel, and so it was written by Daniel. That's the end of the matter. Simply based on what's written, what we call the internal evidence, I think we need to credit at least two, if not three, authors. First, we have Daniel. The visions in chapter 7 through 12 are written in the first person. It's clear they are written by Daniel himself. And then second, we have King Nebuchadnezzar. He wrote a personal account. He makes it clear that he is himself the author 
in the first and last verses of chapter 4. Critical scholars, they scoff at the idea that the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar wrote this, but for us, this is inspired scripture. We have no reason to question his authorship. So that's two authors. Then we come to the narratives of chapters 1 through 3 and 5 through 6. Now these are written in the third person, describing Daniel and his friends. And there are two options here. Some argue that it was considered prideful in the ancient Hebrew culture to write about oneself in the first person. And so Daniel wrote an autobiography writing about himself, but he wrote it in the third person, taking a perspective of an outside observer. And so they say Daniel wrote these chapters as well, but he wrote of himself in the third person. That's one possibility. But for me, I think it seems more plausible to take the words as they are written, that the third person outside perspective outside observer perspective is genuine. And so these chapters are written by an unidentified biographer. It's similar to the way we run into this same question when we read the final chapter of Deuteronomy. While we recognize that Moses wrote the great majority of the five books of Moses, and it is possible that he prophetically wrote about his death beforehand, it makes much more sense to say, Moses wrote the five books, but someone else wrote about his death afterwards. And so I believe the same is the case here. We don't know the name of who wrote these these chapters. We don't know the name of the authors of several of the books of the Old Testaments. And that does not undermine the fact that they are the inspired word of God. Along with the writers of the writer of these narrative sections, it was also necessary for someone to compile the various sections of the book into one completed volume. And I think that is most likely the unidentified biographer or Daniel, if he wrote those sections as well. So in the end, we have two or three human authors of the book of Daniel. But as you know, we have one divine author, our God, whose spirit speaks through the prophets. And we receive it all as God's holy, infallible word given to us for our edification. This brings us to the question of the date of Daniel. This is by far the most debated question considering these uh, matters of introduction. And I'll just state briefly the two views and a few of the arguments and counter-arguments. The critical, or better put, the unbelieving view is that Daniel was written in 164 BC, 400 years after Daniel lived. In other words, this is an elaborate fiction depicting a legendary hero named Daniel. The prophecies are so accurately fulfilled because they are not true prophecies, but are actually prophecies after the fact. They're simply a retelling of history, veiled in symbolism, to give encouragement to the Jews in a time of great persecution. And sadly, even some evangelical scholars have been persuaded by the critical view. I don't know how they can reconcile that with the clear statements of Jesus who accepted the prophecy of Daniel. Uh, In contrast to this, the orthodox view is that Daniel is written about 535 BC. And this lines up with what I said earlier. This is inspired scripture written by the historical Daniel who lived at least into the third year of the reign of Osiris, according to Daniel 10.1, about 535 BC. And so his writings would have been compiled either by himself or by his biographer, 
and published shortly before or after his death. And we don't have time in a sermon to go into all the detailed arguments about the date, but just a few. First of all, the critical view is largely driven by an anti-supernatural bias. The assumption is that accurate prophecy given centuries beforehand is impossible. And since Daniel chapter 11 is perhaps some of the most accurate and clearly fulfilled prophecy in the Bible, it must have been written after the fact. In fact, this date, the reason it's so precise, 164 BC, is chosen specifically based on where scholars believe the author goes astray and ventures into prediction that is not actually fulfilled. Now, when we get to chapter 11, I'll argue that this is actually based on a misinterpretation by these critical scholars. All the prophecy in Daniel has either been fulfilled or will be fulfilled. And in counter to this argument, if you believe that God knows the future, that he has written all of history, there is no reason that he cannot reveal the future in visions, whether a hundred years into the future or thousands of years into the future. Second, the critical view argues that Daniel includes historical errors that are made because it was written 400 years later. Now, one argument that used to be used in this attack on the historicity of Daniel was that King Belshazzar was unknown to history. And he's such a prominent character, how could they get this wrong? And thankfully, this argument has been laid to rest as archaeological discoveries have now shown that Belshazzar was the crown prince son of King Nabonidus, the successor to Nebuchadnezzar. And Belshazzar ruled over Babylon for 10 years while Nabonidus was away from the capital. It turns out Daniel knew far better than modern historians. And now with that away, the primary argument is the presence of King Darius the Mede, who is not known to history outside of the book of Daniel. The counter-argument to this is based on Daniel 6.28. We'll look at this in more detail when we get to Daniel 6. It says, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is, the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. And so the proposal is that Darius is most likely the Median throne name of Cyrus, king of both Persia and Media. So just as popes take on a papal name in addition to their own names when taking office, so ancient kings often took on a new name when receiving their crown. So Cyrus was his Persian name, but the proposal is Darius is likely his Median throne name. Now let me note this counter-argument. It's based on Daniel 6.28, but it has not yet been proven by archaeologists. But the relevant sites have not been excavated. Perhaps further excavation will put the critics to rest once and for all. There are also many other problems for the critical view. The Dead Sea Scrolls have found many copies of Daniel, some dating within a few decades of its supposed composition. It beggars belief that a recent fictitious forgery could so quickly and enthusiastically be embraced as scripture. And the simple fact is there is no compelling argument to undermine the historicity or the prophetic nature of the book of Daniel. Now these arguments, and there are many more, they help to bolster our assurance that this is the word of God. But for us, it is enough to know that Jesus, our Lord himself, accepted 
and affirmed the prophecies of Daniel. He said that these words were speaking of his coming, and not only his first coming, but also of his glorious return. Tonight, this has only been an introduction. It's just meant to whet your appetite for the feast that is to come as we study Daniel in the weeks and the months to come. So why should we study Daniel? Yes, because it is the word of God, but it is also a word for our times, a word fit for the times and the seasons and the culture in which we live. Jesus Christ is the king who rules over all and his kingdom will endure forever. And though mighty nations rise and fall, you, believer, rest secure, knowing that he holds history in his hands. And so let us be faithful as we live and strangers and exiles on earth, trusting that the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth will never leave us nor forsake us. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, it amazes us that this book written 2,500 years ago is still speaking today. It is still as sharp as a two-edged sword. And it still speaks to our hearts. It is living and active. For your Holy Spirit lives within us and applies it to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts tonight and that you would continue to speak to us as we study this book in the coming weeks and months. We thank you, Lord, for what you have taught us tonight. Would you continue to apply it to our hearts? Teach us, Lord, how to live in this world, but not to be of it, not to be pressed in its mold, even as Daniel lived in the midst of an evil empire and yet lived faithfully to your word. Lord, teach us to live and to be conformed, not pressed into the mold of our world, but conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray it in his name. Amen.